0: be with you this morning as we um, jump into to God's Word. I'm just going to acknowledge um, that uh, there's going to be an awkward transition right now, all right? Uh, <laughs> we are about to uh, begin a two-week series, just um, how do we engage in the political process? How does the Bible influence God and government? And there is no easy transition from talking about VBS to what we're about to do right now. So in a few moments after we get done uh, with our service, we're going to party and we're going to celebrate what God did this past week at VBS. Um, And in the meantime, we're going to look at this topic. We're going to talk a little bit um, about what the Bible has to say about God and government. All right. Um, now, if you were with us the last couple of weeks, we, um, we were looking at some of these essentials for the Christian life. So, the last two weeks, we looked at the, um, the importance of our good works as a form of worship. That the, the primary way, or not the primary way, but one of the primary ways that we worship is through good works, that we are to bear fruit. As a part of being a follower of Jesus. That Jesus doesn't save us because of our good works, but he does save us for good works. That we are to be a people who are zealous for good works. And that's a natural transition to our discussion this morning. As we begin to just talk about what exactly uh, is our calling as Christians in a very, very, very divisive political climate. We are not just supposed to be people of good works, but we're also, as Christians, supposed to be good citizens. And so we have to ask ourselves, what exactly does that mean? It's a very hot-button topic, isn't it? If you look at the last 25 years or so, we see what I would refer to as basically a political arms race, where a generation, two generations ago, we might disagree strongly with people who have a different political opinion than us, but we, we could generally recognize that, that they have the best interests of our country at heart. And, and that, assuming the best of the other political party, seems to have disappeared over the last 25 years or so. Today, any topic about po- politics is a relational minefield. It seems like everything that we talk about is brought back into the issue of politics And as you can probably guess, as you know, the church is far from immune from this. So we want to ask ourselves, if we're following Jesus faithfully, what exactly does the Bible have to say about the topic of government? That's going to be our focus this week. It's going to be our focus next week. This morning, what I want us to do is really just frame our discussion on God and government by looking at three key questions. I think that this will lay the the base the foundation for our discussion, and next week we'll look at some of the implications of this, of how we actually live out our faith in the civic realm, if you will. Now, normally on Sundays here at Crosswinds, we will pick a text and we'll just camp in it. This morning we're going to be actually looking at the entire Bible and try to give ourselves a survey of what the Bible has to say About this topic. And while we're doing this, I want us to really just have two questions at the back of our minds. One, how should a Christian think about government? And then two, how should a Christian engage in the political process? Would you pray with me as we jump into God's Word? Father, it is our heart's desire that we would be a faithful people and that faithfulness would encompass all of life. And God, as we look at how your Word influences our thinking and our engagement in government, God, I pray that this would be an act of worship to you, that even now this would be an act of worship to you as we just try to think biblically about such a a hard topic. We do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have much to say on this topic. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be present this morning to teach us, to guide us, to equip us to be more faithful in living in this area of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so keep those two questions at the back of your mind. How should a Christian think about politics and, and how should a Christian engage in politics as we're looking at these three headings or these three questions that we uh, need to, to, to wrestle with to really lay the, the foundation for this discussion based off of what the Bible says. Before we jump into any discussion about government, though, we have to first frame how we are to think about the world. All right, so we're backing all the way up as Christians How do we think about, how do we view our place in the world? So throughout the New Testament, God describes his people in a certain way that I think provides the necessary guardrails for how Christians should engage in any sort of discussion uh, about this topic, whether they're in the United States or or Tanzania, whether they're in Mexico, whether they're even in China. These are the guidelines, the the guardrails that the, the Bible prepares for us, provides for us, As we begin this conversation, perhaps one of the most timely books for us today in the Bible is the book of 1 Peter. Peter's first letter to the church is written near the end of Peter's life. It's written in this context where hostility is increasing in the Roman Empire. It's it's ramping up. And unlike Paul's letters, many of Paul's letters are written to a specific church. They're written to address a specific topic in a, a regional church Peter writes 1 Peter, and he writes it really to all Christians in the Roman Empire. In fact, this is how he begins 1 Peter. As he's he's addressing the entire church, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, And for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This introduction is crucial for understanding what Peter is about to describe, what he's about to talk about here in this letter. And it's crucial for us as we try to figure out what exactly is our place in the world. Notice how Peter describes the church. He's describing the church in a specific way. Yes, he addresses those who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. But before that, he says, I am writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. The elect exiles of the dispersion. That's a significant statement. What exactly does he mean by that? 1 Peter says that those who are receiving this letter, those who are in the church, those who are in Christ, are what he refers to as the elect. That they are a part of God's family. That God always refers to his people, Old Testament and New Testament, as the elect. Those that he has brought in to his family. And any discussion on how to faithfully engage in this world has to start with this bedrock truth. That Christians are first and foremost a part of the family of God. Second, notice what Peter says. He, He not only says that we are a part of god's family if we are christians but also that we are exiles this is an extremely profound word peter says that no matter where you may live if you are a part of god's family then you are somewhat out of place in this world that the values of this earthly nation that you dwell in they won't line up with the values of your true kingdom And if you have lived abroad for any period of time, you probably know what this is like a little bit more than those who have not. When you live in a different country, regardless of whether it is forced upon you as an exile or whether it is by your choice, there are some parts of living in that country that feel natural. It just feels the way way it would living in your home country, and yet there are other parts There are habits, there are customs, there are values, there are ways of doing things that will never truly feel like home. And Peter says that that's how we should look at our engagements in this world. That there are some things that are going to feel natural, but it will never fully, completely feel like home because this isn't ultimately our home country. Notice what else Peter says in this introduction. He uses a somewhat odd word. He refers to the church as the elect exiles of the dispersion. What is this word dispersion? Well, this was a Jewish word that was used to refer to the people of Israel who were scattered among the nations that didn't live in Israel proper, didn't live in Judea. They lived instead among the nations. They lived in Rome or Ephesus, or Egypt, or Babylon, or any number of places. And so when Peter is writing to the church, and he says the elect exiles of the Spursion, Peter is saying that no matter where you live, no matter where the people of God live, no matter what nation you find yourself in, that nation is not your homeland, you have a different home. What's more, the people of God are united together with other Christians from every language, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And we have to let that sit in, sink into our hearts as we consider Christian engagement in politics. So here's the first thing that we have to recognize as we just say, what, what exactly is my, my place in this world? It's first and foremost that we are elect, elect exiles that are scattered throughout the world. And once we begin to understand that we are exiles and we've been scattered across the world, it helps us begin to make sense of our place in this world. Paul begins to expand upon this, and he describes that the people of God are are not only those who have a different homeland, but they're actually citizens of a different country, of a different nation, Philippians chapter 3 tells us that we are first and foremost citizens of a different kingdom. Notice Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying is that every Christian holds dual citizenship, as it were, That we are first and foremost citizens of this kingdom of Jesus, and secondarily, we are citizens of whatever country has issued our passport. Paul's point is not that we reject the country of our birth. Notice, actually, throughout the book of Acts, Paul is very intentional in how he uses his Roman citizenship. He doesn't reject it. He doesn't get rid of it. He instead says, I that is secondary to this understanding that I am a first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. As those who are the elect exiles of the Spursion, the family of God is scattered across the world and we are first and foremost citizens of this heavenly kingdom. Now there is more we can talk about when we consider our place in the world, but I just want to mention one more area, this implication that we, of what we have just seen. So if it is true that our homeland is not the United States, it's not any other nation, but instead it's the kingdom of God as a part of the family of God, that we are exiles, then the implication is that we are travelers looking toward, looking forward to our true home in faith. This is one of the biggest points of the book of Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, is talking about faith, but In it, Hebrews chapter 11 gives us example after example after example of people who are looking forward in faith to what God has promised. In fact, the the book ends, it says, none of these people actually receive what was promised. They continue to look forward. And that's exactly what we as God's people are to do, that we look forward in faith to our true homeland because God will keep his promises. Verse 13, 14, 15, and 16 in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For for people who speak thus or who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is one of the core pieces of of us understanding how we live in this world, how we understand our place in the world, that just like the saints, of the Old Testament, that we recognize that we are strangers in a way, that we are exiles on earth, that this is not our home, that the people of God are seeking their promised homeland, that the citizens of heaven's kingdom long for their home. And we are travelers, we are exiles, we are homesick for our true kingdom, the kingdom of God. But what exactly does this look like practically? One of the most helpful understandings or or pictures of this, I think, in the Bible is is from the book of Genesis. Genesis uh, chapter 50 is where we're going to, to look, but in Genesis, we have the story of Joseph in Egypt. Many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery because of the jealousy of his brothers. God uses this jealousy of his brothers to actually bring about the salvation of pretty much the entire known world. That God, through his providence, over the course of 15 years, positions Joseph into a a place of authority, into the inner circle of the king of Egypt, the most powerful man of the world. And for decades, Joseph dutifully serves the king of Egypt with his all. It's it's not overstating it to say that, that Joseph, he influences both domestic and foreign policy decisions for the nation of Egypt. He helps Egypt uh, escape disaster, and he actually provides a a great amount of relief for the entire known world because of his planning. Joseph has done it all. And yet when he gets to the end of his life, notice what he says. Genesis chapter 50, the last few verses of this book. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So what exactly is going on here in this picture? Well, at the end of of Joseph's life, he's standing in this moment, this man who has shaped the direction of the Egyptian kingdom, this man who has been an instrumental part of the success, the rise to power of this nation in a way that few other people have, he gets to the end of his life and he says, this is not my home. God made us a promise He made a promise to our father and to our grandfather and to our great-grandfather and he promised us the land of Canaan. And there is going to be a day, generations from now, where God fulfills his promise, where he brings you back into that land that he has promised to us, the land that we are looking for, the land that we are citizens of. And when that happens, I want you to bring my bones with you because that is is where I want to be buried. And I think this gives us a picture of what engagement should look like for us today. Like Joseph, we should recognize that we can and must do good in this world, specifically in the nation where God has planted us, and yet we have to recognize that it is not our final resting place that we are first and foremost citizens of a different kingdom. And as such, we look forward to our true home with this expectant faith. In fact, if you look at the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter that we've already looked at, Hebrews 11 talks about Joseph's faith, and it says the most defining moments, the clearest picture of Joseph's faith is in these words, when he says, don't bury me here in Egypt, bring my bones back to Egypt my homeland. This is a picture of how we should think today. As these exiles, as these strangers, these travelers, we look forward to our true home, the kingdom of God, in faith. And once we begin to understand that, once we begin to understand our place in the world, we can begin to ask questions that are more directly related to the topic of government. So let's go ahead and ask those, those questions. The second question to help us fill out our framework, how should Christians view governing authorities? Bible, again, incredibly helpful in telling us how to live faithfully under any government. The Bible is far more concerned with how we respond to those who are in government than what type of government is best. So how should Christians view their governing authorities? Well, first, the Bible tells us governing authorities are instituted by God. This is very clear in Romans chapter 13. Paul is writing to the church, and he says this, "...let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except for God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment." This is true for those who uh, are in the highest office in the land, whether it is Caesar or whether it is a president. It is also true of local officials as well, whether it is a Roman magistrate or it is a city mayor. And it's true whether we have a good government or a bad government. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroys Judah in the Old Testament. And yet God, talking to the people of Israel, still declares that Nebuchadnezzar has received his kingship from God. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So whether we, as those who are part of a democratic republic, whether we choose our governing authorities by voting for them or not, we also need to recognize that the Bible makes clear that God does choose them. That doesn't mean that God supports all that they do. It doesn't mean that he supports their political platform any more than God approved of Nebuchadnezzar and his reign of terror. But it does frame the discussion for us in the right way. That when we begin to see governing authorities as those who have been uh, appointed by God, instituted by God, it should give us pause with how we respond to the government and those who are in authority. What's more, the Bible tells us that governing authorities generally are a source for good. This is also from Romans chapter 13. That governing authorities are generally a source for good good. Romans chapter 13, just the next verse. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Here's the absolutely shocking thing about Paul's words right here. Paul is writing this just a a year or two after Nero has become king. Nero, of course, is the one who executes Paul for his commitment to Jesus a few years later. What Paul is saying is that while there are, of course, exceptions to this rule, generally those who govern us do it as a source of good. That government is much preferred to anarchy. So the Bible tells us that while we may not agree with our governing authorities, they are generally a source for good, that they are a gift of common grace both to believers and unbelievers alike. Of course, as we mentioned, there are exceptions. And while I think the Bible draws the line in a very different place than many of us are prone to do today, it does draw a line. That's what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is writing to the church, and he says this, "'Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor.'" This is an absolutely fascinating statement here from the Apostle Peter. He starts by saying that everyone, every single person who is made in the image of God, which is every single person, is worthy of honor. It doesn't matter where they come from, they are made in God's image, and as such, they deserve our honor. This truth, to show indiscriminate honor, would have been absolutely unheard of in Peter's day. Showing favoritism was just par for the course. Because you want to do good things, you want to honor those who will in turn repay the favor. But Peter doesn't stop there. After saying that we should honor everyone, he says love the brotherhood. So there's a a higher commitment here. Not just honor for everyone, but love specifically for the brotherhood or for other Christians. So from an, an example, as we think about this, I try to be kind to every single person that I meet. But I love my family in a way that is different, that is special. I love my wife and my kids in a different way than I show love and honor to everyone. And the same thing is true, or should be true, for the family of God. We honor everyone. doesn't matter if they are our enemy or our, regardless of our political differences, but we love God's family a little bit more. It's a step up from this indiscriminate honor. So we have honor everyone, and then there's this higher calling to love the brotherhood, love other Christians. And then notice what Peter says next. He says, Fear God. In the New Testament, we're never commanded to fear anyone but God. That God alone holds the place of highest authority in our lives, not any person not any governing authority. The Bible makes it very clear that God alone is the true ruler, the one who is in charge of all, the ruler of the cosmos, that he is the one who ordains everything that happens. So we honor everyone, we love other Christians sacrificially, and yet we fear God alone. The highest, deepest reverence in our life is reserved for God alone. How does Peter close? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Notice what Peter is telling us to do. Up to this point, he's been building to this higher and higher and higher form of devotion. But when he talks about the highest office in the Roman emperor, the Caesar, the the emperor, the king of the entire Roman Empire, He says that you are supposed to show him the same respect and honor as you would anyone else. This is massively subversive in that day. You're supposed to worship Caesar. And yet Peter says that both Caesar and slave deserve honor from us. And in doing so, Peter is laying out the the proper priorities that we have to have when viewing government. Governing authorities are not the highest authority in our lives. God is. Governing authorities are not the highest authority. God is. Now, that doesn't give us a license to ignore or to belittle, to reject, complain, rage against those who are in authority. We show them honor just like we do everyone else. We recognize that they are instituted by God even if we may not care for their political priorities. We recognize that they are generally a source for good in this world, but God alone is the true king. And as I was, I was thinking about this this past week, what exactly does this look like for us today? I thought of the last few chapters of the book of Acts, Acts 24, 25, 26. Peter is standing before all of these governing authorities as he is unjustly arrested. He's in prison for something that he did not do. I said Peter, I'm referring to Paul here. And as Paul is doing all that he can to, to defend himself before these Roman authorities, he still remains respectful. And these aren't people that you should really respect. These aren't great government authorities. Felix, the first person who is over him, he's actually, the, the Bible, Acts chapter 24, actually tells us very explicitly that Felix keeps him in prison and keeps bringing him before him because he's hoping for a bribe. He's hoping that one day, Paul will just break down, give him some money, and that way he can get off and he'll, he'll, he'll let him go. Acts chapter 24, verse six or 26, at the same time, he, Felix, hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. The guy who replaces Felix is not exactly a good guy either. The book of Acts tells us that Festus, the person who replaces Felix, actually tries to help the Jews out with this plot in order to kill Paul. So the the Jews have this plot that they're going to try to kill Paul. And Festus says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and try to help you out. I'm going to try to trick Paul into traveling on this journey. And I know there's an ambush waiting for him. And let's see if this works. Acts chapter 25. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, Festus, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And yet through it all, Paul doesn't complain. He simply states his case in a very matter-of-fact, polite way. He also uses it as an opportunity to platform the gospel. We see his heart before these governing authorities in Acts chapter 26 as he's talking to Herod Agrippa. He says this, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. In other words, as Paul is standing for Herod Agrippa, his, his greatest desire is that Herod and everyone in the room would become a follower of Jesus we would do well to follow the example of Paul who shows honor and respect to all governing authority over him, even those who are corrupt, even those who are wicked, even those who are unworthy of respect and honor. Because as a follower of Jesus, we honor everyone. If we're trying to do that, if we are recognizing the way we are to view the world, recognize how the Bible tells us to view those who are in authority over us, then we can begin to have the discussion on what exactly, how exactly, does our faith influence our political engagement. That's what I want us to look at right now. As we rightly see ourselves as exiles, we realize that there is a great deal about how to faithfully live in this world that we can learn from the Bible, from other exiles. The book of of Daniel, other books about those in the Old Testament who lived during the exile, like Esther and and Nehemiah to some extent, Ezra. These books show us what it is like for the Jews thousands of years ago to live as exiles. This is the setting of these books. Israel is under this foreign occupation And the people of God learn how to live in a way that is faithful to God as well as faithful to the nation that they live in. So let's consider a few examples. I want to specifically look at the example of Daniel. First, exiles seek obedience to governments while remaining obedient to God. Seek obedience to government while remaining obedient to God. This is the foundation for any discussion on how faith influences our engagement with politics and government. Christians should actively seek out ways to be obedient to those who are in places of authority over them while at the same time ultimately remaining obedient to God. Fascinating. Just write this down. 2 Kings chapter 5. I think that's the chapter. 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman It's a fascinating example of what this could look like as we live as those who are exiles in a different nation. Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 1, his friends, he and his friends are taken from their homes. They're brought hundreds, thousands of miles away from their home as these slaves, and they're brought into this foreign nation of Babylon to serve this foreign king. And As a part of this intake process, they are given a selection of food. It's some great food. It's better food than anyone else has. And yet there's a problem. If they're going to eat this food, that means they're going to have to sacrifice their faith, which meant that they had to abstain from this food that has been set before them. So, how do Daniel and his friends reply? Do they throw a fit? Do they stubbornly refuse? Do they compromise their faith? Well, Daniel chapter 1 gives us the answer. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So really what takes place is Daniel, as he is seeking to obedient to this request, this order from Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants to be obedient to God, he basically places things in God's hands. He says, God, if I am not going to die for my convictions, I need you to come through. And so he politely asks for this exemption. He says, God, I'm going to need you to take care of us if we are not going to die for our convictions because I'm going to be obedient to you. And yet I also want to be obedient to the government and to the place where you have put me. And God comes through. That's what Daniel chapter 1 is about. What's more, Daniel and his friends are actually considered to be exceptional. Daniel chapter 1 verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So Daniel sees his responsibility, even though he is in exile, to be obedient to the government. And he did so in a way that allows him to remain obedient to God. Now, why does Daniel place such obedience or so such emphasis on obedience to the government? I think it's because of something that the prophet Jeremiah said before the people of Israel entered into exile. Jeremiah chapter 29 talks about how the people of Israel are to live as exiles. God says this: but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will also find your welfare. In other words, what God says is, as those who are exiles, you are to seek the welfare of your community. To seek the welfare of your community. This is part of the responsibility of Christians, that wherever God has placed us, we are to intentionally seek the good of our community to seek the common good of both Christian and non-Christian alike. And absolutely, one of the ways that we do this is through political engagement. But as Christians, we are called to engage in the political process, not just for how it will benefit us, but to also think of how it will benefit all people. But I also think that political engagement is just a small part of this. This really means to live out the great commandments, to love God and to love others, that we have an opportunity to make a greater impact for the good of our community by loving our neighbors, by sacrificing for them, by serving others in our community. If anything, if we as as a country, irregardless of of political persuasion, can use political engagement as this excuse to not care for one another. To not love one another. We abdicate ourselves from the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. The greatest way for us to seek the common good, to seek the welfare of our community. Exiles are those who firmly believe that God has positioned us exactly where he intends for us. To do exactly what he intends for us to do to seek the welfare, to seek the common good of those who are around us. To love God, to love others in our community. And that's exactly what Daniel, that's exactly what his friends do while they are in exile. I think it's this mindset that motivates exiles to prioritize the gospel over political agenda. We we emphasize, we prioritize the gospel over political agenda. Daniel, he, he never seems to miss an opportunity when he is, he's given a platform to talk to the king of Babylon to point people to the Lord. Just listen to his speeches. He's given his first platform that we know of before Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter two. Daniel answers the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And shortly after this, Daniel is promoted, but his commitment remains with prioritizing the gospel over any political agenda. Later on, because of his relationship of trust with the king, he's actually able to speak boldly to Nebuchadnezzar. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a warning and says, If you don't repent... This is what is going to happen to you. And Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Here we see Daniel, and for him, this... This moment of politics and government, it's secondary to the idea of a right relationship with God, this this idea of the gospel. And once he has Nebuchadnezzar's ear, he's got his trust. He doesn't use that to try to lead Nebuchadnezzar to freeing Judah or to giving more power back to Judah, but instead he uses it to try to get the king to repent when he has the opportunity. His highest concern is the gospel. He trusts that God will bring about transformation, that God will do what God sees fit. In the same way, exiles must prioritize the gospel over any agenda. This is a calling of our lives. One final point I want to just highlight from the life of Daniel, the exile. Exiles are the best citizens they can be. Exiles are the best citizens they can be. Irrespective of who holds political power, exiles are the best citizens they can be. Just consider Daniel and his heart for those who are in positions of authority who disagree with him greatly in matters of politics. Here's Daniel, he's he's genuinely distraught for King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four. And it's not because he's afraid of delivering bad news to the king of Babylon. It's because he actually cares about Nebuchadnezzar's soul. uh, Daniel chapter four. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Here's Daniel, and he goes out of his way to be this best citizen that he can be, even though he's in exile, even this, though this isn't his home. He becomes one of the most successful men in the nation because he sees... His responsibility as an exile, as someone who is a part of this heavenly kingdom, to do all that he can to see his current kingdom flourish. And Daniel shows us that it is possible to be respectful and to be respected even while we maintain the convictions of our And that's really where I just want us to end this morning. This resolve for us to be a people who are respectful while also respected by maintaining the convictions of our faith. Here's what I think the Bible teaches us on this topic. Heaven's citizens hold their country loosely while sacrificing for her good. Let me say that again. That's a packed statement. Heaven's citizens hold their country loosely while sacrificing for her good. Those who follow Jesus recognize that we are citizens of a different kingdom, that we see ourselves as strangers and exiles who increasingly long for our true homeland and as such we know that any sort of engagement in government is not the end goal it's not the primary means about bringing about change or transformation in the people around us and so we hold this country loosely at the same time heaven citizens hold their country loosely they also sacrifice for its good that we do all that we can to be the best citizens that we can be, that we do all that we can to be obedient to this government while remaining obedient to God, because God has instituted this government. We do all that we can to seek not just our own welfare, but the welfare of our communities, that heaven's citizens hold their country loosely while sacrificing for her good. And here's what this looks like in practice. Far from meaning that we divorce our faith from public engagement in policy as some claim that we should do. And far from meaning that we believe that as long as we get the right people in the right positions, this will result in this utopian vision of the future as some people believe based off of their actions and attitudes about politics. Instead, we simply recognize that we can be doing more by being gracious and kind and loving and compassionate in the spheres of influence that God has planted us in. That the Holy Spirit will bring about change in the lives of those who are around us because he is the great transformer of hearts. This doesn't mean that public policy isn't important. It's something instead that we should hold loosely. Heaven's citizens hold this country loosely while sacrificing for her good. What if we resolved to live like exiles, like Daniel, like his friends? What if we saw that it was possible for us to be respectful and respected by holding fast to our convictions? to be a people who sacrifice for the good of those who are around us. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to be a people who increasingly see ourselves as citizens of heaven's kingdom. As citizens of the kingdom of God. And from that place, God, I pray that you would help us to love well in this world. To be a people who are intentionally looking for ways to seek the common good, to seek the flourishing of those who are around us, our community, our cities, our nation. God, give us wisdom on how to be kind and compassionate and loving to prioritize the gospel, to honor everyone while we fear you alone. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.